Welcome to the very first episode in our new series, Inside the Arab Classroom, in collaboration with Global Ties for Children. My name is Mikey Mhenno. Today on the series, we have Joyce Rafla, who is a senior research scientist at Global Ties. She holds a master's in education in language and literacy from Harvard and a master's of arts in human development from Teachers College at Columbia University and a BA in economics from the American University in Cairo. This series is a collaboration between New York University's Global Ties for Children and Afikro. Global Ties for Children is an international research center based in New York University focused on supporting education and child development research in low and middle income and crisis affected contexts. Joyce, welcome to the series. Thank you, Mikey. It's great to be here. It's funny to tell you welcome to the series because you helped create the whole thing. <laughs> um, so let me just ask you the most basic question, which is why were you excited about hosting this series and helping produce the series to begin with? Um, well, I've been a big fan of Afikra for years and years, and I thought um, of the many platforms out there, Afikra would be the, our best collaborator, mainly because of the centrality of curiosity in the process. Um, we have been doing a lot of work in Arabic-speaking countries, we as NYU Global Ties for Children, um, and we've noticed that um, everyone is uh, talking about the basic common problems in education, especially for low-income Arab countries. You know, um, there's overcrowdedness in classrooms. Teachers' salaries are low. Um, most of the Ministry of Education budgets are mainly directed to staff. So how can you implement any reform without having any money for it? And, you know, privatization is a problem. All of these you know, these are, you can find them in um, reports, books, journal articles. What we felt is uh, a couple of things were missing from the conversation. One, the story itself was missing. The story of what's going on, like, inside the Arab classroom, as the title of our podcast series um, dictates. Um, you know, what is the experience of an Arab student going to school with a heavy bag of books on their back? What do they feel like? What promise that does education provide or doesn't provide? Um, are there common problems? What are the differences? Um, the other thing is we have been producing a lot of what we call public goods as a center. And we wanted it to make, we wanted to be known that we've been doing that so that anyone who's looking for tools or, or um, assessments or just want to know where to go, um, we are one uh, place where you can go. And we thought this podcast series would also be a platform to put together um, some of what we think are the prominent Arab thinkers in education across the Arab world uh, who've spent a lot of time thinking about this and to invite the Afikra listeners to be curious about education and what's going on, um, just like we are very excited about it. Yeah. How do you feel, where do you think the disconnect is? Like the idea is to take take the listeners inside the Arab classroom, right? Yes. Um, do you feel like it, there's a disconnect most, mostly between the broader public mm -hmm. and what's happening in the classroom? Or is it there is a disconnect from the sort of research centers and what's and the public or the research centers and the classrooms themselves? Like, where do you think most of the disconnect lies? Yes, I think there's both are, uh, are there, but there's a third type of disconnect, which is all the international organizations and all the 
um, INGO-led reform mm-hmm. that's also disconnected from the contexts in which we work. Um, and I think a central piece of this disconnect is probably the data, because there's a, a wealth of information and anecdotal evidence, but it's not documented. And the only way policy works internationally, like for big organizations like the UN or the World Bank, they rely heavily on data. But then if you look at um, the EdStats, which is the World Bank's education statistics website, to try and find any data for the Arab world in the past maybe 10 years, you might find some, but not all. Um, And anecdotal evidence is not really incorporated in the research. So again, research centers are disconnected from the public. And then the public don't know what good reform looks like. So they don't know how to hold their policymakers accountable for good reform or bad reform. So that's kind of the pieces that I would want us to explore in this podcast series. I want to come back to that idea of like what good reform looks like. But before we get to it, what is Global Ties? And this is a question that I asked you the first time I met you. Right. (laughs) Just like, what is this? What is this institution? It is a Um, question we ask ourselves every day. I have to tell you. Yeah. So what is Um, what is Global Ties? So I think that we're kind of, how do I explain us? So this is me. This is not like our communication team or anything. We're a yeah. bunch of education nerds who are very excited about education um, and about uh, trying to make education better for uh, citizens of low and middle income countries. Um, we are um, interested in measurement. How can we measure impact? So our bread and butter, our like focus is impact evaluations. How can we measure whether a reform or a program is really effective um, in improving education for students. So that's like our central piece, if you will. And uh, how can we use this information to advise policymakers in low and middle income countries? Um, We've worked across the globe um, in sub-Saharan Africa, in Southeast Asia, and in the Arabic-speaking world. we started in 2014, and then shortly after after we started getting a lot of projects in the Arab world as well. So we had a couple of big projects. We had a project called Equal, Education, Quality, and Learning for All, where we tried to establish like a research network for Arab researchers working specifically in education research. So yeah, we're interested in that. And shortly after the George Floyd um, incidents took place, we started thinking how we can change like we asked ourselves what is global ties and we noticed that we wanted to decenter our our voices as a research center in the global north and that meant very practical uh, changes in how we do our things for example instead of coming in with our research tools we now strive to build the research tools collaboratively in the contexts where we work so that they resonate they're meaningful um and we also um, were interested that since we're working in the Arab world, we probably need to hire way more Arabs than we have right now. So we're slowly um, fighting the system, if you will. So that's kind of what Global Ties is really quickly. Yeah, that's cool. Um, and you guys are mostly based out of New York, but you're just like traveling around. We're constantly. traveling around because our, uh, yeah, because right now we have a project in Lebanon. We have a couple of projects in Latin America. We have projects in Bangladesh. So we are based in New York University, but we have to travel a lot for work. Yeah. Okay. So um, 
I mean, what do you think people are supposed to be getting out of, you know, the series more broadly? Um, what, are you, what are you hoping that people sort of get out of this whole process? I think I want education enthusiasts to like know more the lingo and know how to look at reform and understand what it aims to reform, whether it's good reform or bad reform. I want parents to know what does the research say about what a good school looks like? Because a lot of air parents I've talked to, they really, when they come to pick schools for their children or even think about homeschooling their children, they don't know where to look for. Um, so that's that's kind of where I want. I mean, the podcast series is not going to cover that intensively, but I kind of want to give people a glimpse of what it looks like. And I want to give a quick update on what education is like across the Arab world, if you will, for anyone who's interested yeah. in sharing uh, what our center is doing in a way of like giving back to the community that we've been working with. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about education, actually. Um, what is the broad state of the Arab classroom, so, so to speak? I mean, how are schools doing? How are students doing? How are ministries of uh, of education and system, school systems doing across the Arab world? Give us a broad brush state of uh, affairs. So you can look at the story of education from two lenses. You can look at the data lens and you could look at the lived experience lens. Um, and both are great and they complement each other. Um, so from the data lens, we have made a lot of significant progress. We have um, enrollment rates that are very high. We have more girls being educated. Um, but maybe the quality of education itself is not that great. And when we speak about the Arabic-speaking countries, we have to make a huge distinction. We have the low-income Arab countries um, th that includes Egypt, Lebanon, um, Syria, Palestine. And then we have the GCC Arab countries, Emirates, um, Saudi. And the story there differs drastically. So mm -hmm. when I talk about challenges in education, I'm mainly talking about um, the low-income Arab countries. Um, so the data piece is one. Um, the lived experience. So I've I've been working in education in three main countries. I worked in Egypt and I worked in Jordan for, for a little bit. And now I'm um, on a project in Lebanon. So I've seen like a broad picture across three countries. And you can see similarities in, uh, in some stuff, especially Egypt and Lebanon for me are like the most similar. What are some of the main problems that are uh, seen across these low-income countries like Egypt and uh, Lebanon and other countries like it? Um, so I can think of three main problems. Um, one is ECD is neglected. And by ECD, I mean early childhood development, which is pre-primary education. Um, the research tells us that ECD is important. It's a strong predictor and what does ECD entail? Early literacy skills, how to read and write. Uh, early numeracy skills, how to do math. And also social emotional learning skills, which is how you identify, how kids identify and manage their emotions. These are like the three main focuses uh, of ECD. And they are strong. If you invest in ECD, 
it's a very strong predictor for even the country's economy. So ECD is an area that's hugely neglected. Who is doing, I want to keep going down the list of the problems, but before we go. Sure. What does that actually problem look like? I mean, we're saying like, okay, so headline is early childhood development is not focused on. Yes. Right? Yes. What would it look like for it to be focused on on a system level? Great. Um, so teacher preparation is a huge component because um, when when I say ECD is a huge predictor, I don't mean any ECD. So what's happening across the Arab world, again, what I'm saying right now is anecdotal evidence. It's not documented. But what's happening in some of the Arab countries is that people are sending their kids to daycare, but not a lot of learning is happening. And that would not be a strong predictor. So the teacher is a is a pivotal um element in good quality ECD. So teacher preparation for ECD, which would mean that we need to have higher salaries. We also need a lot of investment in research. So when I talk about early literacy skills, Arabic is part of that package. And we haven't done extensive research in the teaching and learning of the Arabic language, which one of our episodes in this podcast series is actually going to cover. So we need to invest in that so we know how to teach early Arabic literacy skills. Okay, let's go to the second main problem. The second main problem is teachers' qualification and training. And our center, um, our colleague, uh, Dr. Lindsay Brown from NYU Ties, worked on a project in partnership with Mehe, the Ministry of Education in Lebanon and the World Bank, to explore an approach of contextualizing and co-constructing practice-based teacher professional development in the region. And it was a success. They had B-main recommendations, which is shifting teacher professional development from a focus on fragmented, like one-off workshops, um, to actually teaching them transferable skills, um, situating teacher-learner opportunities with an existing instructional framework, which means making it something that works for the teachers. And then finally, is co-constructing the interventions with practitioners so that there's buy-in and acceptability and feasibility and sustainability. Because a lot of teachers, and this is across the world, a lot of teachers would complain that a lot of the reform they ask teachers to implement is top-down and it's not practical. So then people may be nominally implemented, but not genuinely buy-in. Yeah. How does this actually affect teachers? Because like, I used to be a teacher and usually like, if you get information from the Ministry of Education and Higher Education, that's like, oh, we just figured out this new framework. You should be doing this and that and this and that. Everyone kind of rolls their eyes like, oh my God. Exactly. What, what, you have no idea what's going on in my classroom. You have no clue. Exactly. Um, How does it actually trickle down in any meaningful way? So that's why you need to um, have collaboration with teachers' voices being represented when you're planning interventions. And that's one of the disconnects, the many disconnects within the education sphere is that Mm -hmm. you're exactly right. Like a lot of teachers complain that you have no idea what I'm struggling with. I'm fighting to keep, you know, electricity in and you come here and tell me, oh, just use these tablets to like have diagnostic assessments on the iPad. I don't have an electricity. Do you have any idea what's going on? Um, And unfortunately, 
um, I heard this from one of the top policymakers in um, in Egypt, actually. Uh, and they were saying, oh, uh, the reform is 90% of the reform is when you announce it. And <laughs> that for me, is, I'm like, that's what's the problem, you know? <laughs> Wait, hold on, hold on. He was saying that the reform happens, 90% happens when you announce it, or just the announcement is the reform? I think, I think it's what, it's what I, I term as the, the facade and of reform and the facade of reform. The facade, the facade and the facade. Oh, perfect. Beautiful. Um, I love it. It's the facade of reform. So that's what, I think that's what he was interested in. The, that look that we the, are... The ribbon cutting. He wants the ribbon cutting. Exactly. And like, people are excited about like this tablet project that's going to revolutionize education in Egypt, for example. But, yeah. but then that's it. And that's where the facade comes in. This is corruption of the facade, you know? And yeah. So, yeah, that's what I think he meant. Before we get on to the third, the third main problem. Yeah. Do you think that information and education is, is precisely the problem um, or is primarily the problem for people in position to make decisions? Or is that the incentive structure is completely wrong? Like they know, right? And the reason why I asked you, like, have we ever been good at early childhood development? Or, um, or also additionally, I could say, have we ever been good at, at teacher training? Like those aren't revolutionary ideas. Those aren't like, oh my God, we should be teaching kids. Like young <laughs> kids, it's important to teach young kids. Or, oh my God, we should make sure that the math teacher is also not the PE teacher. <laughs> and the French teacher and the music teacher, right? Like we, those aren't like revolutionary ideas. Um, so is it that people literally don't know what interventions to do or there are structural reasons, systemic reasons that are preventing them or dissuading them or discouraging them from making the right choices? So I want to situate your question with an example that comes to mind when you ask me that question, yeah. just to make it, easier and more accessible. So in Egypt, for example, private tutoring is a huge problem. A lot of people have published about it. Everyone knows that a lot of teachers go to the classroom and they do not teach in the classroom, not because they don't know how to teach, but because they feel like if they give private classes to the students, then they can use this knowledge to, for like a bigger monetary gain. And a lot of people are like, oh, these uh, immoral teachers, they are this and that and the other thing. And like, instead of attacking the system, they attack the individual that's just finding the incentive within the system. So yes, yeah. Don't, and, hate, don't hate the player, hate the game. Yeah, like the incentive structure doesn't work. The teacher <laughs> is a human being and they need to teach the, to feed their family. They need to... and. Life is becoming more stressful. Things are becoming more expensive. So if they mm -hmm. have a skill that they can sell for a bigger value, and yes, this is a lot of people would be like, oh, but people should not be self-serving. Yeah, I understand that. And until we get to that place, we need to work with what we have right now. Um, and so the incentive structure really reinforces, creates a, like a loop 
negative feedback loop, if you will, where we expect this and then it happens and then it reinforces that this should keep happening. So then reform becomes a bit of an issue. So that's part of it. Another part of it is that a lot of reform is sometimes instigated or pushed by international NGOs um, like USAID funded projects or other big um, projects like that that are that are heavily funded and a lot of ingos specifically would hesitate to actually interfere and shake the system at its core because they feel it's mm-hmm. not their place we need to have a sit down yeah. as humanity and figure this out okay last last main problem okay so we said ecd is an issue teacher preparation and qualification is an issue um and then the third problem from where we stand is lack of data and research. We have an issue with inquiry-based research. And again, people hate on the researchers and they're like, oh, you're too abstract. But then look at the context. If we're in a context where freedom of expression is a bit of an issue, we're not going to have the most groundbreaking social science research. It's not like, I'm not talking about molecules and, and viruses. I'm talking about people and so that's a more sensitive issue than like maybe science research. Um, mm, yeah. But also the governments do not like the data that's coming out of the government. The culture of data itself is not heavily enforced. Um, there were times where foreign donors um, encouraged ministries of education in the Arab world to have what they call EMIS, the Education Man- Management of Information System, where they report on like salaries and um, expenditure on uh, education as a percentage of GDP. Um, but again, if you look like I was trying to find some some nice statistics to give to our listeners and I went to the ed stats uh, in the World Bank and the amount of missing data is overwhelming. So that's that's an issue because now how do you plan reform? How do you measure whether the reform is working or not if the culture of data and reporting is not there. Um, yeah. There is an article that was published years ago by the Arab Center uh, of Development by Dr. Ilham Nasser. And she also mentions that families are not incorporated um, in, in the system of education reform. And that's an important piece because we always think about uh, school as a standalone, but school exists in a context and systems thinking is where we should be thinking about this. And um, we recently did um, a parenting intervention in Jordan under Ahlan Simpson. And uh, as I was preparing the literature literature review for the paper of this uh, impact evaluation, I noticed that there's not a lot that has been published about parenting in the Arab world. And Mm. there's not a lot of like parenting frameworks or school to parenting collaborations. There's very little that's that's been th- thought about and published there. Um, so that's probably is that an is that an Arab world thing or just globally people don't un, people don't look at the family as a unit that's worth that's relevant in the sort of education system. No, a lot of um, wealthy nations focus on like parent teacher conferences and parent teacher associations and governance bodies in the UK where parents are part of the decision-making process. So it is Mm -hmm. something that has been uh, recognized, but, um, and there was one program in Egypt years ago, it was 
again, a USAID-funded program called Education Support Program. And they did, one of their goals was to establish governing bodies that involved parents. Um, So that was um, also another, you know, an effort there, but nothing that remained sustainable. Um, And families are an important part in the Arab world, especially because, um, you know, when we talk about strength points, one of the strength points and commonalities between Lebanon and Egypt is that rural schools have parents who have probably left the country um, to go and, and, you know, for uh, pursuing better economic opportunities. And the remittances from these parents actually support the budget of the school. So families are should be definitely um, a focus when we are thinking reform in the Arab world. Are there any glimpses of hope? <laughs> any strengths? Are there any rays of sunshine and rays of hope? Um, yes, there there is. Um, so the community schools that I just mentioned is what for me is like the most heartwarming uh, glimpse of hope is that how parents and communities come together to kind of fix what the system has broken and what the system should have fixed. Um, so that's like one, and it's a big... Are these, when you say community schools, community and rural schools, are you talking about public schools? Are you talking about parochial ones, religious schools, private schools? No, no I mean public schools. I, I Public schools in a village in Egypt, for example, or I think Madaris al in Lebanon, you would find... First of all, the teachers are from the community. So they are teaching their sons, daughters, and cousins. So they're going to teach whether they're, the government is paying them or not because they have a vested interest in this, right? Yeah. Which again, says that the model of a self-serving world where everyone should just... It's not necessarily the answer. If you have a community, it's, it could be part of the answer. And then um, their parents also... They all, someone goes to work in, let's say, Australia, and then they invite the rest of the people in the village. In Egypt, it's mainly in the Gulf. They go to work in the Gulf. And then they can fund the school to have resources, to have electricity, to have, um, you know. So that's kind of what we mean. And you would find the quality of the education in some rural schools is much better than the urban centers. Yeah. Okay. So So that's that's one point of, one ray of hope. Are there any others? <laughs> yes. Um, so we've seen a lot from people who publish about the teaching and learning of Arabic language is that, oh, the diglossic nature of Arabic is very problematic. You know, kids are uh, hearing dialect and then, then they go to learn fusha, which could be the case. But um, we've seen a lot of sh- a shift in a lot of the Arab researchers who are trying to approach this from a decolonial lens, instead of seeing this as a, as a problem and a hindrance to teaching and learning of Arabic, they're trying to see whether um, there are opportunities to capitalize on the diglossic nature or there's a different way of seeing things. And when people say, so there's a, a World Bank report that came out, I think, in April 2021, and it said that 50% of Arab students um, will not be able to read and write Arabic by the age of 10. And that's an issue because how did you, like, I'm sure that that's the case. But then you look at the testing of how they test Arabic using specifically EGRA, the early grade reading assessment. And um, EGRA has 
a lot of feedback on it that has not been addressed. There are some egra, some versions of egra that only contain the tashkil or harakat, the diacritics, only. And they ask kids to say what that sounds like. And that's kind of, diacritics don't go alone. We don't see fatha uh, moving along on its own. Fatha comes with a with a ha or a del or some letter, you know? Yeah. Um, so then the glimpse of hope here is that there's a lot more pushback that's, that's happening and that is very good um let's keep on going to other other possible strengths or rays of hope i think the international development scene is trying to change a little bit um for example one of the um, great things about the kitabi project which is also going to be covered in one of the episodes is that we have more arabs who are in the kitchen we have more Arab cooks in the kitchen versus other inter- interventions that are purely designed by non-Arabs for the Arab world. And that's an issue. I think the international development world is trying to, to see how it could be an extension of colonialism and reckon with that and start decolonizing themselves or, you know. So we have more Arab voices being represented. It's not ideal, but I think it's, it's a ray of hope as well. Yeah. Okay. My last, my last major question for you, which is how will we know if we're moving in the right direction? Well, I think when I, I'll tell you what I do when someone tells me, oh, this new reform is happening in Lebanon or Egypt. Yeah. The first question that comes to mind is, has there been any impact evaluations to kind of inform that? And... What has been the decision-making or stakeholder engagement in a decision-making process for that particular reform? Um, If it's implemented without a pilot, has it been piloted and a proven success? Um, What's the scaling looking like? While we're scaling, are we testing or like trying to monitor and evaluate the effectiveness of the scaling? Um, So that's kind of, you know, and how are we going to make sure that the also years down the line, this reform is going to be um, updated, you know, because things change and our countries change. And if you don't change the system, then the incentive structure is going to change and then the reform is going to be moot. Yeah, and that's what these are the elements I'd be looking for. Um, Who can we look to as a region and no. say they are doing it correctly? And. I'm going to remove some people. I'm going to remove possible candidates. Okay. Places that have our high income economies. It's not, it's not fair to sort of compare, right? Right. hundred percent. Um, so let's remove that, that entire group. I want to answer this question by three different Joyce's. Joyce from like 10 years ago and five years ago and Joyce of today. Amazing. So- we needed a panel. We needed a panel discussion. So <laughs> go. This can be a battle. So I think 10 years ago, I would be like Finland. Finland has been like very much celebrated, the Finnish system, the Finnish reform, blah, blah, blah. Of course, like you said, we can't compare ourselves to Finland. It's a very different context. Um, maybe five years ago, I would have said um, something like India. Because India is still within our income, it's low and middle income and... They have a lot of people, like Egypt, for example, and they've done 
successful education reform. And right now, I will tell you, I don't know, because I am mm. grappling personally as a researcher with getting ready-made models and implementing them. I don't think it works. I think we need to think together as a population on how we can make this work and then come up with a contextual solution. Yeah. So that's I, I, where I stand today. Yeah, I mean, I get it. I, I totally understand. For me, sometimes I feel like... Um, sometimes I, I, I look at it and I'm like, Okay, it's because the country is in economic turmoil. That's why. I mean, that's the issue. Yeah. Um, not that we need to spend more money on it, but there are all these trickle-down effects from right. people living in poverty, from health issues that come with poverty, from job insecurity, from uh, movements of people. Maybe even the economy isn't the the... The the Drive. the health of the economy isn't actually the main predictor. Maybe it's yeah. a symptom of a deeper predictor. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, um, conflict and you know, yeah. insane corruption and all this different stuff. Exactly. No, that's um, that's right. Because then you look at high income Arab countries, and they're scoring really high. So money is definitely a, a very huge predictor of reform. But I can't say. If based on evidence that that's the only factor. Um, mm. I think it requires a lot more research and, and thinking, which is a very unsatisfying answer. I, I get that. Um, yeah. But that's, if you want to do something right, you need, that's the only way I know how to base um, good policy reform. It's based on, and it's evidence-informed, not evidence-based, because it's informed by the evidence, but not led by the evidence, because context really makes a difference. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Yeah, it's tricky. Okay. I'm going to uh, wrap up. I'm do our quick q and I'm going to put you in the hot spot too. Um, okay. So um, what are you reading or watching right now? Oh, um, I am reading uh, No Bad Parts by Richard Schwartz. Um, mm. It's a book that talks about, it's not education related. It's a book that talks about an, what for me is a new a form of um psychotherapy called internal family systems. Uh, and this is what's informing when I reference systems thinking when it comes to education. The book talks about that uh, extensively, that we think in silos and parts, but we're all part of, a, of an ecology. And system level thinking is very important for change, whether internal change on an individual level or on a societal level. Amazing. Who would you love to shadow for a day, past or present? Taha Hussein. Why? Uh, because Taha Hussein um, wrote a lot about education. He was a minister of education back in the day. I don't necessarily agree with a lot of the stuff he wrote, but I am very intrigued on his thinking. And I wanted to maybe have a couple of arguments with him. Yeah, I like his sunglasses. Wow. <laughs> okay. Um, what do you think people most misunderstand about your work? Um, great question. I think that a lot of people think that research, education research is too abstract and impractical and like really doesn't have a bearing on our day-to-day -day lives. 
And I think that the line of work that we do is not some education research can be too, too abstract and like too philosophical. And I'm like, what's the point? But our line of research tries to get to the bottom of things. We tried to, um, which can be redu- reductionistic at some point. I, I understand and I acknowledge that. But for me, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a very useful tool to, for policy reform. So I'll give you four constituents and you tell me who you think misunderstands your work the most. Okay. Okay. Families. Mm-hmm. Educators. Mm-hmm. Policymakers. Mm-hmm. Donors. Oh. The most? Like, who do you have to actually convince the most that the work that the broader research community is doing is valuable and is going to help move the needle? I think teachers. I think they're they're under a lot of stress that when you come and be like, oh, but, you know, when you start your lesson, you have to start with a diagnostic assessment to check for understand. And they're like, I have a curriculum I have to get through with it. And that's a consistent phrase that you would hear, you know, it's a business as well. And there's no time uh, for reform. So yeah, I think teachers would be, but uh, all of these families are the least. A lot of parents approach me and they're like, what does the research say about raising our kids? Or how do we Mm. evaluate good schools? Um, You know, that kind of stuff. Um, So yeah. Okay. And the last one is, whose work do you admire or are inspired by? I think I admire um, Dr. Reem Khamis Dakar's work, which she's one of the guests. Um, And I admire her work because I've followed her work for years. And she's not only doing the work and uh, not spending time advertising about it like other researchers might be. But she's also very genuinely trying to question her role in the colonial process within within how we look at Arab language teaching and learning. So, yeah. Yep. Cool. Well, people are going to be able to hear all these episodes. Um, I'm really, really excited about the system, about the whole series. If people are interested in learning more about Global Ties, um, you can go to globaltiesforchildren.nyu.edu and it's all over social media as well. This series is a six-part series um, and it has been so much fun to put it together. And we hope that parents, teachers, educators, policymakers, and the general public um, really benefit from it. Thank you for having me, Mikey. And thanks for making this podcast series with us. We're very excited about it and we love Apikra. We're big fans. Yep, we are too. Okay. Um, I hope you guys enjoy it. Thanks so much. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you'd like to watch the full uncut version, go to youtube.com slash afikra. There you can see the full video versions of these podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, go to afikra.com where you can learn about our Zoom events, our live events in 30 different chapters around the world, our social media presence, and our podcasts and YouTube stuff. You should know that everything we do is all towards a mission of converting passive interest in the histories and cultures of the Arab world into an active intellectual curiosity. By listening to this, you're a part of that movement, so thank you for being here. If you'd like to support our work, go to afikra.com support and join the hundreds of people around the world who make this work possible. Thanks. Thanks.